Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. My next guest started off as a special education teacher and then became a IEP coach. Let's find out why she made this decision and much, much more. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. I want to believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking. Bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. I want to believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking. Bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. Shape shifting, same player, different position. The definition could stick with them. Drifting through these layers of wisdom. I took a break from tradition. I move away from what's expected. Change the Hello and welcome back to another episode of Inside Asperger Studios. Today I'm joined with Shelly Now and my lovely co-host Michelle Markham. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks, Reed. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Well, Shelley, I always like to ask my guests, the very first question is, so tell me about yourself. Okay, well, how much time do I have to answer that question? Because you can, I wear many, you can many go, hats. You can go on as long as you want. I mean, my show <laughs> runs as long as the guest wants, so. Okay, okay. Well, I'll try not to take up the whole show just saying who I am. Um, I'm a veteran special educator of over 30 years. Most of that spent inside a special education classroom. Um, but a lot of that time also spent being a paraprofessional, being a substitute, and then now what I do full-time is an IEP consultant or IEP coach. Um, on top of the IEP coaching and consulting that I do, I work as a speaker for schools providing professional development. I have my own podcast. Well, technically, oh, I guess actually it's a podcast now because we have released it just in audio, but it started out and mostly is a live stream. It's called Hashtag No Limits. And on that show, I chat with people like yourself. You're going to be a guest coming up in a few <laughs> weeks. And um, we just chat about the fact that you have had limits placed upon you by society, but you are busting through those limits all the time. And I do that to try to change people's perspectives and give more experiential knowledge of interacting with someone who learns differently. For myself, that is really what changed my life. I'm an author, and the name of the book is Those Who Can't Teach True Stories of Special Needs Families to Promote Acceptance, Inclusion, and Empathy. And there's 10 chapters in the book. The first chapter is my chapter of going from wanting to only teach general education primary students to where I am today of being incredibly passionate about making the world better for all, one IEP at a time. Mm -hmm. And then the other nine stories, like I said, are true stories from nine different families who shared their experiences. And the, the book is a beautiful collection, but I realized there are millions of stories like those that are in the book. And in order to keep sharing those stories, that's one of the other reasons that I started Hashtag No Limits, because there's some, like I said, there's just, there's literal millions of stories of people who are constantly busting through limits. And I had the mistaken idea that I wouldn't have anything in common with someone who learned differently than myself. I wouldn't be able to have high enough expectations for my students if I became a special ed teacher instead of a gen ed teacher. And then through a series of God winks, 
he kept placing me in jobs where I didn't really recognize that I was working with those people that I thought I wouldn't have connections with. And um, just finding out how much my perspective changed due to that exposure seemed like a great thing that would work for everybody. Because I think that's how it is. We get so used to in our society clumping people in groups that we don't think about them as individuals. And when we are exposed to people who are different than us in a variety of ways, that's where we start to change. So trying to change one person at a time and reach one person's heart at a time. Um, Let's see what else I do. (laughs) Go ahead, sorry. (laughs) That's a very good message. I mean, to change one person at a time because we don't realize the limit people are put on everybody. I mean, I'll share the story with you now and I'll share it with you on your show. My mother and I went to... Back when I was going through um, doors, Department of Rehab, I had <laughs> I had this one this one caseworker who literally told me, score out to my face. I don't think you'll be able to make it through a four year university because of wow. your handicap. I was disgusted. I after the meeting, I looked at my mom and she knew I was upset. And she's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't feel I don't like the way she talked to me. I don't like anyone putting limitations on me, telling me what I can and cannot do. She's like, what are you going to do about it? I said, I'm going to write her supervisor and say, I am very disgusted. The fact that she sits there and telling me what she thinks I can and cannot do. And I got, and they, and they agreed with me and they changed my caseworker. And to, to my own surprise, I graduated through an online university with a bachelor's degree. And then I went to get my master's degree four years later. Awesome. Good for you. I don't have a master's degree yet. What is your master's and your bachelor's in? My bachelor's is in um, advanced computers, uh, information technology, um, network security. And my bachelor and my master's is in advanced computer science, computational intelligence. Yeah, I, I think that's amazing. Okay. And I have a similar story. I was told by my high school guidance counselor that I would never graduate a four-year university and I could choose a trade and that would be my career. So I think it's pretty common for professionals to tell us what we cannot be. And it's something that needs to shift. It needs to change. We need to stop dictating what other people can and cannot do. And understand that, as we were talking about before the show started, you know, autistic people kind of do things in their own time. And so it did take me longer to finish university, but I still did it. So I think that it's important that we have these discussions and we, you know, break down the glass ceiling that says that autistic people can't graduate from college or whatever that might be. Well, and Michelle, I'm so glad that you said that it, you know, you did it. It took you a little bit longer because I am quote neurotypical, whatever that exactly means, but I didn't go to college right out of high school. I didn't get my degree in four years. I, I went to a local junior college and, you know, that's supposed to, supposed to take you two years and it was three or four years because I was working at the same time I was going to school. And then kind of the same thing with the other, well, three years for a special education degree. Um, It took me longer than just three years to do it because I was 
experiencing life at the same time I was going to school. And I think that's the other problem is people get boxed into what college looks like. And it it doesn't have to look like that for anybody. No. You know, whether you're neurotypical, neurodivergent, or, you know, rich, poor, whatever it is, we have to to understand that there's more than one way to get to where you're going. And that's actually something that I used to tell my students is it doesn't matter to me that your brain works differently than someone else's. And I didn't want it to bother them so much and make them feel somehow less than. Um, and what I would say is, you know, most, many people can go from point A to point D, passing straight through B and C without any hesitation, glips or whatever. But then there are other people who have to go from point A to point B. Maybe they have to come back to point A, mm -hmm. then they go up through B to C, but then they might have to take some turns and detours along the way, but eventually they get to D. You both got to D. Mm -hmm. Just your path looked different. And that doesn't make it wrong. That doesn't make it less. That's just your path compared to someone else's I love that path. perspective. I mean, I mean, I was told, I remember a story. Right after high school, my parents put me to college, sent me to college up in University of Oshkosh um, because they had a very special education program going for those who were, who were special ed. And you did tutors and everything. And I remember at the very first dinner we had before you start school, you'd meet with former students. And I remember one of the students and I were talking and he looked at me and he says, I want to tell you something. He's like, where it takes a normal student one hour to do their work, it's going to take people like you and me two to three hours because it's going to take us an hour to read it and then another hour or two just to process what we just read. And then that next hour to understand it all and write it down. Right. And that still sticks with me today is that our minds work may work different than everyone else's, but we still get the work done. Exactly. And uh, that was something that I had a discussion often with an administrator that I worked with because she would so often come and say to me, she was also a part-time teacher, part-time administrator. And she would tell me that, well, this kid is just sitting there. He's not doing anything. He's not putting in any effort. He just sits there. I said, if you could see inside his brain compared to everyone else's brain in your classroom, you would likely see that what he's doing in his brain is actually more mm -hmm. than what everyone else is doing because there's the processes are just so completely different and the amount of effort is so vastly different in many cases. And that was probably one of my biggest pet peeves when I would hear teachers tell me that students, well, if they just put in more effort, well, if they just tried harder, if they just did a little bit more, if they, if they paid attention, okay, let's talk about what disabilities are. And let's talk about the qualifications for different disability mm -hmm. or the characteristics for different disabilities. And don't tell me that these students in your room just need to do X, Y, or Z, and then they would be fine. No, they have a disability. It's been determined by medical professionals or a group of, of educational professionals, whomever decided that this particular child was eligible for special education. There's a reason that that child was found eligible. Your opinion mm -hmm. doesn't really matter to me. 
that kind of Sorry, remind... I get a little heated when I talk about no, it's all right. No, it's okay. <laughs> and a teacher that I worked with. Well, it kind of reminds me of a story a guest told me. He was giving a lecture to a bunch of um, special education students and disabled students at a JCC, and he realized none of them were looking at him, and he fought that they weren't listening. So he went to the woman that ran the event, and he said, she goes, how did it go? And he's like, I don't think any of them were listening. And she's like, you're wrong on that. You see, they're all disabled, and they're all a lot of them have autisms. They may not keep on contact with you when you're doing the show, but they're listening to you. You were a hit. And people don't realize that even though we may not look at you dead in the eye, we're hearing everything you say. Right, exactly. And I used to, in my classrooms, have, and this was before flexible seating was the thing that it is now, but um, I would allow the students to be wherever they wanted to be in the classroom. And I had students who had specific eligibility under specific learning disability, under autism, under other health impaired, under um, intellectual disability in in a classroom all at the same time. I, I've taught in very small schools. And so whomever came to the school and needed special education services would get me. And I would have this group that I can remember specifically, there were like seven of them in the classroom at the time. And when we would read, I would let them go wherever they wanted to go in the classroom. I had some students who wanted to pace. I had mm -hmm. other students who they were fine sitting at the table or the desk. Some students wanted to be, I actually had one student who wanted to be underneath a table kind of that was in the corner of the room. And he, there was a, uh, like a cover over it, like a draping kind of cover. And he would pull that down. He was, he felt safe reading out loud from that spot because he couldn't feel anyone else's eyes on him, whether they were looking at him or not, he didn't know. Mm -hmm. And he felt safe and he read so much better when he was there than if he if I had made him sit at the table constantly and I had an administrator come in and tell me that I didn't have control of my class and that I that my students weren't listening and that the student and she made me stop doing it mm -hmm. and that student didn't read out loud anymore and mm -hmm. I never forced my students to read out loud as long as they could tell me where we were if they wanted to send like tell me the first word of the part where they would start I would let them do that and then they could say pass I just wanted to make sure that they were with me. But if they didn't want to read out loud, I did not force that. Because there's so many reasons that kids don't want to read out loud. And to, to me, that's traumatizing if you make a kid mm -hmm. read out loud when they don't want to. And the kid who was pacing, he could always tell me where we were, whatever question I asked him, he could give me the answer. So I knew he was paying attention. But people just... If it looks different to them, it's wrong. Yeah. And and to me, that is the wrong attitude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that reminds me of, I just had the assistant minister of autism from Australia on, and she was telling me the story about how she had, how they had one student in their school and he just wasn't doing well. So he pulled, his parents pulled him out and he's like, and you're like, okay, we're going to put you into another school. And if you're not happy, we're going to pull you back out again and, and then we're going to work, we'll figure it out. Well, they put him into second school and he started to thrive because 
that he had a teacher who understood autism. And this kid now is selling popcorn in every one of their petrol stations in Australia and oh making word. money. And he turned around the money and he gave it back to the to um, the Foundation of Disability. That's incredible. And that's exactly why I have that idea of hashtag no limits, because it, it truly is do not set limits on someone's potential. You know, we, we mm -hmm. don't know what kind of scientific breakthroughs might happen or medical breakthroughs or miracles or mm -hmm. technological advances. I mean, I see with doing my show and, and being on shows like yours and learning from you so many things that are available. And, and it just seems like, you know, every few weeks, something else helpful comes out or is learned about. And the, and the more we learn about the brain and how the brain works and functions, mm -hmm. the more we can help our students from that information too. It's just a matter of educators. Yeah. And I am one. So I am, I am calling myself out on this. We are really bad at teaching doing the right thing and teaching following the research and applying the research to whatever our students are going through, but we don't necessarily do that ourselves. I mean, and that's why she had also told me now they're making it mandatory for all, they have four colleges and they compete with each other, but now they've made it to a point where they all have a program that if you want to teach special education or you want to teach, you have to go through the autism training before you even graduate to teach regular school. And that's become Fantastic. a program. Yeah, we need this kind of training because I've heard horror stories about teachers who don't know how to handle special education students. Yes, and we absolutely do a disservice, in my opinion, to our general education teachers here in the United States when they're getting their undergrad degree. Because if you think about the amount of hours that credit hours that you need to get a four year degree, it's about 120, 25 hours. Out of that 120, 25 hours for a general education teacher, maybe six to nine of those are on special education topics. However, we expect them to teach everyone that has an IEP that the team has decided the least restrictive environment is the general education classroom for whatever amount of time. So we're we're doing a horrible job preparing mm -hmm. our teachers. That brings me up to my first question. Why did you want to become an IEP coach? As I said in my intro, I had taught for many, many years and had been in the world for quite some time and saw how many parents would come to these IEP meetings and sit there and listen, you know, and and we thought they were participating and having meaningful participation as is their equal right. Um, but they would just have this glassy eyed look on their face when the someone, whoever was doing it would say, do you have any questions? Well, no, not really. And so um, there were many times when I felt that they probably, if they had been informed ahead of time of what was going to be talked about specifically, that maybe they wouldn't be able to have some questions. Or if it wasn't, such an overwhelming and scary process. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how many of your own IEP meetings you went to as a child, but as a parent, when you go into those meetings, it's you 
and a minimum of four people from the school. But the max, there is no maximum number. I have been in meetings with a parent where there have been 20 people at the meeting. So you've got the parent and myself and 18 other people, 18 other experts that are, that's intimidating to a parent. Even mm -hmm. if they have thought about everything, that's still intimidating to have all these people that you have to justify to what it is that you want. And so I wanted to give the parents that support and help them understand their rights. I don't teach anything or, or tell them anything that's not in the procedural rights and safeguards that are handed out at every IEP meeting. I just bring out the things that they need to know that are important that they, I mean, nobody sits and reads those things. It's like, I don't read the mortgage paperwork for my house. You know, I don't read the loan paperwork. I basically just trust that the main points that I've looked at are the ones that are going to be followed. And that's kind of how parents do it with their children's 504 or IEP. And then after a few no, years, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, Michelle. I was going to ask a question, but. Um, and so, okay. After a few years, then I, that realization about the education of our general education teachers came to me. And then I, I started realizing I should also be working with teachers and school districts. There are so many teachers, even now, special education teachers, because of the shortages that we have all across the country who are getting into being teachers of special education after having been in some other career. And so the amount of training that they're getting is that much smaller incrementally than having gone through and done the whole four-year degree. And they don't know how to hold meetings. They don't know mm -hmm. the law. They don't know how to write an IEP. And so I eventually, after a couple of years of just working with parents, started reaching out and working with schools and providing that professional development as well. So Michelle, what was your question? I I'm wanted sorry. to ask, what's the most confusing aspect you see for parents in creating an IEP or in establishing one for the first time? Where do they kind of get tripped up the most? Just because the, I think how long it takes there are safeguards in place both for the student and the school district, but from a parent's perspective, it just seems like the school district is dragging their feet and not wanting to help the child in the way that they know the child needs. And a lot of times I hear that, you know, like, what do you mean it's going to take another two months or three months before my child can get help? That's two or three months that we're missing. I understand that and I agree with you, but that's what the law allows for. Um, and so that's a big one. And then just understanding all the jargon, I think would probably be the second most difficult thing for parents, because as educators in any other field, we start using acronyms all the time without realizing that the person we're talking to doesn't understand what we're saying. Not, and even using some of the same words, they don't always mean the same thing in education that they might mean in the medical world or that they might mean in an engineering world or a law enforcement world. And so making sure that everyone really understands what is being talked about at these meetings. And that goes for the therapists and the educators too, because a parent will say things sometimes and the educators will hear it, but not listen to it. And the reason I say those two things are different is because I believe you hear with your ears, but you listen with your heart. Mm -hmm. And if you are just hearing words, but you're not 
taking into account everything that's happening with that parent and that child, you're not necessarily looking for any other meaning other than the one that you've already developed in your head about that person. And so being able to, to say to an educator, well, the parent is asking for this, or the parent is curious about this, and then sort of turning it into teacher language again as well. Yeah. Why are IEPs so important to the students? Well, they are, the letters stand for Individualized Education Program. And in order to be eligible for special education in the United States, you have to go through a whole evaluation process to determine if a child is eligible under one of 14 different categories. And then they have this IEP meeting where they develop the plan. And the plan is supposed to be what directs the education components for specific deficit areas for that individual child. So mm -hmm. I, I focus on the individual part because both in the IEP and in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that's the, the first letter. And so it's important to not just say, well, this is how we have this program at our school. So this is what this child who's eligible for special education is going to receive. It's not supposed to be that way. It is supposed to be very individualized to the one person that you're talking about at that particular meeting. Um, as I said, with me, I worked in such small schools that anybody who found, was found eligible for special education was my student because we didn't have any other environment for them to go to. Now, if for some reason my classroom wasn't able to provide them an appropriate education, then we would look outside of our school setting and, and other schools in the area to try to find an appropriate placement. Thankfully, that never happened, um, that I, I wasn't able to, I take that back, I did have one student that um, I was not on board with sending them to a different school, but the administration said, no, this child is, is too much for what we have here. We're not providing an appropriate education. We need to send them someplace else. Um, but yeah, it, it's very individualized. I had the great privilege because of my settings to learn lots of different ways because I wasn't only working with people who were found eligible under autism. Like I mentioned before, the specific learning disability, other health impaired. Uh, I had traumatic, in my career, I have had every eligibility under of those 14 categories. All right. When should a parent get an IEP for their child? Is there a specific age? Is it when they first get into grammar school or is it, or should they wait till high school? Where is that? It really depends. It, it really, again, it's individualized. It depends if you as a parent, no matter what the age of your child, even if your child, and I'm not sure about other countries, but in the United States, even if your child isn't meeting some milestones between birth to three, there are services that you can reach out and receive. They're not, uh, they're not considered IEP services or special education services, but they are special services. And so if your gut is telling you that something is different about your child, then seek out your pediatrician. And if your pediatrician just says, well, let's wait and see, but your gut says, no, I don't wanna wait and see, keep pushing. The same thing when your child gets into school. Um, if you're finding that, you know, in those primary grammar years that they need, you think you're, you're providing a lot of accommodations, a lot of extra support, 
then reach out and ask your school. But if your child is doing okay in the primary grades, but then in high school or grades or middle school, they're starting to have problems, it's for certainly okay reaching out then as well. So whenever, I guess the answer is whatever age you feel your child is needing more than quote unquote, the average person, that's the time to reach out. Can you just back up for one mm. minute and talk about what's the difference between an IEP and a 504 plan and why a parent may want to advocate for one over the other? So the basic difference between the two, and this is a, a very basic, um, it's, is that with an IEP, there is specially designed instruction. And so the group of people have come together and determined that the child has some needs but they don't need any specially designed instruction to help them access the curriculum. They would just need um, accommodations. And so if you're just gonna go with accommodations, the 504 plan would, would likely be a route that you could take. Even if you needed some related services of um, occupational therapy, physical therapy, counseling, social work, nursing, transportation, different things like that, you can still get those kinds of things with a 504. But if that team determines that you need that specially designed instruction, because there are going to be some areas that they really want to target that uh, specifically designed instruction towards, then you're going to want to have the IEP. You can get an IEP that has um, um, sorry, my mind just went like <laughs> with all the same related services that I mentioned for the 504, um, but there's a speech eligibility for special education. So if you ever have just a speech eligibility, um, you can get a speech only IEP. Um, and so sometimes that's a little confusing because some parents are like, well, my child, all they need is speech. Well, I understand, but speech is an eligibility. So that's why they're getting the IEP. Thank you. Mm -hmm. right. Great question. What are, what are some of the misconceptions parents have about getting an IEP for their child? Well, I would like to say it's a misconception, but I think one of the biggest fears is the stigma of, of having an IEP and having special education needs. Um, that is a, a big concern. My, my child's fine. They don't need special education. Um, I guess a misconception would be that now that my child has special education or an IEP, they're not going to struggle. They're not going to have to work as hard. They're um, they're just going to be, you know, passed through easily. They're not going to have to work as hard. Um, everything is is like they're cured, quote unquote, and that that's not the case. Um, you know, if you have an eligibility for special education it's likely that whatever you are found eligible under is going to be with you the rest of your life. So there is no curing it. It's a matter of we, we are going to accept it and work within the parameters of how you learn. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about your book. What prompted you to write it? Um, actually, again, it was, it was a God thing. I had never thought about being an author and having worked with so many different families over my career and then having friends and family members um, who learned differently. When I, I really feel like the Lord pulled me out of teaching. I think I would have stayed there had he not said, it's time for you to go. Um, and then when I said, well, what do you want me to do now? He said, well, two things. I want you to start the IEP coach or yeah, the IEP coaching business. 
and I want you to write this book. And the reason for the title, those who can't, um, is in quotation marks, teach is the saying, those who can do and those who can't teach. Every teacher hates that thing or doesn't like it. I, maybe they don't hate it, but they don't like it for sure. And when I have asked multiple teachers, and, and my own opinion is because it always makes us feel like we're somehow less than every other occupation in the world. Well, that's how the families and the individuals in the book feel. That society makes them feel less than because they're different. But just like teachers teach every occupation in the world and every student in the world, I learned so much from each family that very rawly and honestly shared their stories with me. And from knowing them personally through teaching or friends or family, that I put that at the end of each chapter of all the different things that I was taught. And so trying to give that saying a little bit different concept behind it and not make it as bad as it always has been. That. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your podcast and the type of people you're interviewing? Um, at first, I started off just interviewing people like yourself who have, like I said, busted through different limits that society has placed upon it. But over the years, um, I'm I'm into year three, I guess, or to to the end of year three. I've I've got about 150 plus episodes out. I started realizing that you know, outside of parents. Teachers are the people who spend the most time with kids when they're growing up. And so they are the ones in a lot of cases who are helping our students bust through those limits. And so then I started bringing teachers on and having them talk about all the great, wonderful things that they do and how they differentiate in their classrooms and all the things that they have seen students bust through. And then I brought some companies on who they are making products that are helping people bust through those limits. Um, I've had um, just, I mean, the majority of the people are still the parents or the individuals themselves, but um, the companies and the teachers have been so insightful and informative and and in inspiring to me because I think there's, there's so much hope. It is kind of dim, but it, there is hope. Mm -hmm. All right. Do you remember your very first guest? I do. Um, his name was Zach Neighbors, and he attended the same university that my daughter was attending at the time. And we were at a basketball game, and I was watching this game. And, and this particular university uses a very fast-paced program um, called The System in their basketball program. And and this young gentleman um, was up and down the court and and you know, defending and, and offense. And then I looked a little bit closer and I realized that he was missing the lower part of one of his arms. Wow. And I was like, whoa, this kid's playing college ball. Like I got to talk to this kid. This is awesome. And so, yeah, he was, it wasn't called hashtag no limits at the time, but yeah, he was, he was my very first guest. All right. Let's go back to the IEP for a minute. Sure. What things, what things should parents make sure are in the IEP for their child? I think one of the most important things that is so often missed, especially, is their input. So as I was mentioning before when I was talking about how daunting the meetings were, and one of the reasons I got into this is if a parent can think about their concerns 
top three to five concerns, not just for that school year, but for the next five years, 10 years in the child's adult life. What is it that they want? What are their concerns for that child? What are their fears? If they can write that information down when they're not in the middle of the meeting, um, and I help people do this, and it's called a parent input statement. And we write that information in there and we say, you know, okay, these are my dreams or these are the things that the student wants. And in order to get there, the student is going to need A, B, and C skills to do that. And so those are the areas, you know, that I think the IEP needs to focus on. And then we have that information sent to the school and have them put it directly into the parent concerns section of the IEP, because every IEP in the United States has that section. It might be called something different, but it's there. And that way, you don't have to try to come up with something in the moment when you're on the spot with all these people around you. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be one way to get your voice in there and one important aspect of something to have in there. And then to make sure that the information is accurate. Many times, school districts do a lot of meetings very close together and teachers get confused and they do copy and paste because a lot of things <laughs> are similar between you know IEPs and accommodations especially. Um, and so make sure that the things that are written in there are actually about your child. And if you think some of that information is incorrect, then talk to the school about it. Like this doesn't sound like my child. And in many cases it is, it's that they're seeing your child differently than you are. But in some cases there has been mistakes or the information is old and you don't want that information in there. So you have the right to tell them to take that information out. Um, and once you get the IEP, the finalized version of it and ask for a draft, some states they have they are required to send a draft IEP three to five school days before and it's different states have different timelines. Others are not required, but I suggest that you still ask because if you ask, they are required to send you something. Ask in writing, everything you do, always in writing. <laughs> um, it doesn't happen if it's not in writing. And that's not necessarily a, because the parent or the school doesn't want to do it. It's that they forget, they're human, things happen. Um, so get that draft, but then once you get the finalized copy, again, read it over and make sure that the things that you agreed upon are in there. If you thought that there were a certain number of minutes per week that your child was supposed to get of a related service, but it's written as per month, hmm. reach out to them and say, I thought we decided per week. And if they say, oh, you're right, but we're not going to worry about changing the IEP. No, yes, you are going to worry about changing it because whatever is written in there is what the school is going to follow and what any outside person is going to say, well, this is what they have to do. So make sure you look back. I know it's daunting, but make sure you look back over it and make sure that everything in it is as you believe it to be. I'm sure with your experience and talking with many, 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 many parents, you've had parents who have literally glanced over it and you've literally, I'm sure you said, don't, please do not glance over it. Please read it through and make sure it's, your child's information and they've not missed one thing. Yeah, and and as I said, you know, maybe don't do it right away, right after the meeting, uh, right after you get it even, because sometimes parents won't get it for a day or two after the meeting, but go over it very, as, as soon as you can. You know, if it's a week later, still go over it because what's gonna happen 
is if you go over it then, it's fresher in everybody's mind and it'll be easier for people to remember what was decided. But if you wait until all of a sudden, you know, it's a few months later or even the next school year and you're looking back thinking, well, I thought my child was supposed to be getting this or, or that or, and then you look at the IEP and it isn't written that way, your likelihood of being able to talk to the members who were in the meeting and have everybody remember what was discussed is very, very little at that point. So yeah, like I said, even if you have to read it over in chunks and take notes and then just leave it alone for a, a couple of hours or a day and go back and read another chunk, do that because it is very, very crucial for your understanding and the education of the child. Excuse me, sorry. No problem. Now, I'm sure going with, through with parents, going over their IEPs, you've seen a lot of parents write down what fears they have of their child. What are some of these fears that parents have? Interestingly enough, I think the majority of the fears that parents have for their children have nothing to do with academics. It's more about the social side of things. I want my child to have friends. I want my child to be able to have, um, you know, go out to lunch with their friends if they're in high school or have play dates if they're in primary school and, and have conversations and have interactions that are positive. Um, for some, it's what's going to happen to my child when I am not here any longer as the parent. Um, you know, I'm taking care of my child and I'm doing everything and I have ways to understand my child and communicate with my child and I know what my child needs. But what happens if I'm not here tomorrow? Who's going to do that for my child? Very, very rarely have I ever had parents say their biggest concern is whether or not a child gets an A or a B in a class or learns a certain skill or a certain concept. I can see that. I mean, especially when your child is somebody who is disabled or somebody who just is antisocial or just very much an introvert. I can see that with a parent being, what am I going to do when I'm gone and my child is on his own? I'm not here right. to advocate. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that was something in some discussions that I'd had with some of my students' parents over the years that the first time I ever had a parent tell me that was so eye-opening for me because I have a daughter and that's, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, when I go, she's going to be sad, but I'm not worried about her beyond that point. I'm not worried about her care. I'm not worried about how she's going to live. Um, and, and so to hear that from a parent was, was very touching um, and heartbreaking all at the same time. And sorry, uh, that's got me a little bit emotional. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. I mean, it's, it's life. I mean, uh, even when you're not a parent, you constantly think about your own life and what's going to happen at the end and where will I be or what happens when my parents are gone? Am I going to be okay? I mean, that's the thought that's constantly going through my head. I lost my dad in 2017 and I'm with my mom and my biggest thoughts still to this day is, am I going to be all right? I have an older brother, but he's got his own family, but I know my brother has told me, listen, you're going to be okay. Lori's family, my sister-in-law is one of the biggest families we have. 
They're going to look after you. You got a place to live. Don't worry about it. I, you have everything looking out for you. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that because honestly, I hadn't thought about it from your perspective, from the child's perspective. I mean, you're not, you're a child, but you're an adult. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we're always children, no matter how old we are. Um, and, and yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of it from, from that side of it. So thank you for sharing that with me. Not a problem. Michelle, you have any questions? Yeah, I'd like to know, um, Shelly, what is your favorite part of your job and what do you find the most challenging for your business? The favorite part, I think, is so often after a meeting, the parent says to me, that was the best meeting that I've had because I actually felt as though the whole team was listening to me. And remember I said, I look at the difference of hearing with your ears versus listening with your heart. And so I, I, I get that almost every time I have a new client that they uh, this, the school actually listened to me this time. The most challenging part would be to get the school to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, because we have inadvertently developed ideas in our head um, our own cognitive biases about parents who give any kind of pushback. And if a parent is bringing me to a meeting, they have probably pushed back a little bit already before bringing me in. And so the school has sort of an idea of, oh, you know, it's that parent. Oh, this is a problem parent. And so I have to work to, to explain like, look, I'm here because we want to help you and the parent write an appropriate IEP or 504 for this child. And I'm going to ask a lot of questions to get everybody hopefully thinking a little bit differently. And I, I'm not a typical, as an IEP coach, um, and, and you might have said it read at the beginning that um, I'm an advocate. And technically, yes, I'm an advocate, but I don't come out adversarial with boxing gloves on like many, many advocates do. And that does help me to break that barrier down of, we're not here to blame you. We're not here to accuse you. We're here to work together and help everybody listen to what everybody else is saying. And I've had teachers oftentimes and administrators after the meeting say, that was so awesome. Like, we've never worked with an advocate like you. And I'm like, well, that's because I'm not tech. I mean, I'm technically an advocate, but that's not how I present myself. And so to hear it from both the teachers and the families is very encouraging that I'm doing something right. Yeah, that's really <laughs> wonderful. Shelly, do you work with specific districts or do you work nationwide? I work nationwide, um, providing the professional development. In a lot of places, I can't, in a lot of states, I can't provide it online because I'm not a school. And so a school has to hire me to do the presentations or provide the information. And the same thing with parents. I work with parents all over the nation. Fantastic. Shelly, have you had parents who were hesitant to put their child on an IEP? And what do you tell them to kind of calm their nerves and say, hey, an IEP is beneficial for both you and your child so they'll get the right and proper education? I have had some parents over the years and even 
outside of the school system, being a coach now, I've had those parents that have, have had that concern. And what I try to tell them is there's nothing wrong with your child that they need this extra education. It's just their brains were built differently and that's okay. That's who they are. You know, um, if your child had a broken arm, you would take them to a doctor. You wouldn't say, oh, I now there's something wrong with my child. I'm not going to get that addressed. It's kind of the same thing. You know, if you see that your child has a need, this is just a way to help you provide that need for your child. All right. And lastly, where can people find out more about you and your IEP coaching so they can reassure themselves and help and get your help? It's super simple. It's just go to my website, www.shellykino.com. And it is interesting spelling. Um, so if, if you don't mind, if I spell it really quickly, it's S-H-E-L-L-E-Y-K-E-N-O-W. Um, and you can reach me by email, Shelly at ShellyKino.com. And, and you can buy my book on my website or on Amazon or anywhere else that books are sold. Sorry. Not a, not a problem. <laughs> And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Reed Miles, joined with Michelle Markham, and that was Shelly Kino. See you in the next one, everyone. See you there. Bye-bye.